Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we um, will finish chapter 10 this morning. As we are going through the New Testament. And this morning, I have rather a, a long title, but it's basically... Paul spoke about certain areas of conduct last time we were together. He's going to build upon that conduct. He's going to elaborate. He's going to add to it. He's going to expand it. He's going to build on now the fellowship and the, and the faithfulness of our conduct in verses 16 through 33. Now, in the last part of this chapter... Uh, is a further explanation of the previous instructions about the conduct of the believers. And especially dealing with idols. And when it came to eating the meat <clears throat> offered to idols. Because there was a lot of idolatry in Corinth. And eating meat offered to idols was a big problem with the believers there. And Paul had spoken earlier about this problem of eating meat that was offered to idols. But now he's going to give more details on these instructions about this problem. And the principles involved here can be applied to the conduct in the believer's life today. So it does apply to what, you know, to our lives today. In verses 16 through 22, the Apostle Paul tells us why. Why we should flee from idolatry. Because idolatry not only offends God... But it's harmful to men because it corrupts the one who practices idolatry and it's harmful to everybody around them. So idolatry corrupts a person by making him or her spiritually unclean. Now, whether they worship a god, whether it's made of stone or wood, plaster, whatever it might be made out of. Or maybe they worship a complicated God, a complex God, one that they've created with their own mind and, and their own heart and their own ideas. It has a corrupting effect on his moral life and spiritual life. It, 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 it has the same effect on believers and unbelievers. An unbeliever is pushed further from God and pushed further from God's way. And a believer defiles the holiness of his relationship with his heavenly father. But God is full of mercy. And in his grace, he will continue to forgive and to cleanse the believer. But his idolatry continues to be dishonoring to God and sinful to God. Idolatry harms those around the idolater by giving them a false testimony. By being a bad example to those that are not believers. It's a degrading influence on an individual or on a whole society where idolatry is practiced. Not only that, but no idol of any kind, of any shape, can help anybody. They're useless. An idol cannot forgive your sins. An idol cannot save you. An idol can't give you peace. It can't help you with your problems. Neither can fortune or fame or education or social status or any other thing that people put their trust in. Every idol is man-made. Every idol is powerless. 
And idols only defile. Idols never glorify God, but always dishonor Him. Because you see, there's no good that can come out of idolatry. The only smart thing to do is to flee from it. So let's begin now with verses 16 through 18, where Paul begins to tell us that uh, idolatry is contradictory. Notice in verse 16, Paul says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Earlier in verse 15, Paul said, you're reasonable people. He said, decide for yourselves what I'm about to tell you, you know, if if what I'm about to say is true. And I'm going to read this again, these verses from the New Living Translation, when it says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table... Aren't we sharing in the benefits of the blood of Jesus Christ? And when we break the loaf of bread, aren't we sharing in the benefits of the body of Christ? And we all eat from one loaf, showing that we are one body. And think about the nation of Israel. All who eat the sacrifices are united by that one act. Paul says that an idol is nothing. So if you offer meat to an idol, it's nothing. The meat is not affected at all when you, you know, offer it to, when someone offers it to an idol. Now, the cup of blessing mes, mes, uh, mes, mentioned here, the cup of blessing is the Lord's Supper. Now, that doesn't allow any kind of idol worship. The word communion means having in common. And it often suggests the share which one has in anything. So the cup of blessing, which we bless... And the bread which we break represent an actual sharing in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The word blessing literally means good speaking. And it's used in the scriptures in different ways. It's used as as praise in Revelation 5.12. It's a benediction in Hebrews 12.17. It's a benefit in Romans 12.29. And it's used for giving of thanks, which is the meaning of this verse. The cup of blessing was part of the Passover feast. Now, the Passover feast were a time of joy where the father of the family would pass the cup. He'd pass it around as part of the ceremony. Now, each family member took part in the ceremony. This was also the cup that Jesus had initiated. It pointed, it pointed to, for the most part, the benefit of Christ's death. You see, in Paul's mind, there were no doubts about the main point of redemption. And that is, to, to Paul, the source of all spiritual blessing was the blood of Christ. And in the same way, the breaking of bread was personal. Each person sharing in the benefits of Christ's work on the cross because Jesus Christ was the living bread. Paul said we are all partakers of that one bread, Jesus Christ. And this probably refers to each person, each believer, breaking off a piece of the loaf, representing both the individual blessing and the corporate fellowship. Now, when they took communion in in that day, there was one loaf of bread. And they'd pass that one loaf of bread around, and each person would pinch off a loaf. And so by each one, 
you know, taking a piece of that bread from that same loaf, they were, they were like being uh, uh, nourished by that one loaf. And then they together participated in that one loaf and it united them. Christ being that loaf, taking off that piece of bread, each eating it, it united you united yourself individually to Jesus Christ and you were united to one, united to one another. So again, that's what uh, Paul is symbolizing here. Communion with the Lord, you know, brings fellowship with one another. And so again, we, we see that as Paul mentions that through the symbolism here. Those taking part, all receiving a piece of the same loaf are made into one spiritual body. Paul said in these verses, when Israel after the flesh, meaning when an Israelite, when an Israelite had eaten a part of the sacrifice, identifying himself with the covenant people, he couldn't take part in a heathen ceremony after that. I mean, what a a contradiction that is to say I'm one with the Lord, partaking of the communion of the blood of Christ and then worshiping idols. You know, it, it, it couldn't be done. So the Christian who took the cup and broke the bread, could no longer take part in idol worship. Again, it would be a contradiction. Because the idea of unity and fellowship with God through eating a sacrifice, it was, a strong, uh, it was strong in Judaism and Christianity. It was strong in paganism as well. In the Old Testament days, when a Jew offered a sacrifice, he ate part of that sacrifice as a way of restoring uh, his unity with God, who he had sinned against. And in the same way, Christians participate in Christ's once for all sacrifice at the Lord's table when we take communion, when we eat that bread and drink from the cup, symbolizing Christ's body and his blood. New Christians, new converts that would come out of paganism, they couldn't help being affected. Okay, if, if they knowingly ate meat offered to idols in their feasts. Look at verses 19 through 21. We see that idolatry is demonic. Verses 19 through 21. Paul says, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Paul asks the question here, you know, in what he just said, he says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Am I saying that the idols that the pagans bring sacrifices to are really gods, are real gods? And that these sacrifices have some value or are of some value? The answer is no. The meat offered to idols was no different than, than from any other meat. The idol it was sacrificed to is no God. And yet there were demonic forces that were connected with idol worship. The things that the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons, Paul said. And Paul means... That heathen religions start from evil spirits. And as a result, the man who takes part in this kind of worship puts himself under their influence. The point is, the meat offered to the idols wasn't the important question. The heart of the matter was that it was in participation in idol worship. And that was a turning back to heathenism. 
It was turning back to heathenism. Heathenism is under the control of Satan. And Satan and his angels are the powers that they honor and that they worship, whether they knew it or not. It's a moral impossibility to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devils. Again, it's light and dark. You can't, you can't combine the two. There's no, there's no unity between light and dark, saved and unsaved. And that's the point that Paul's making here. The cup of the demons he talks about here, the cup of the demons was the climax of heathens' feasts. Because there would be a threefold toast that was made in honor of the gods. So a Christian could not take part in something like this without going against their conscience. And if you try in any way to have fellowship with God, while knowingly taking part in idolatrous practices, that's going to provoke the Lord to jealousy. Because we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have to have our total commitment Total commitment, body, soul, and spirit, heart, soul, and mind. Total commitment to Jesus Christ. Like Paul says, we cannot partake in the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. No way. Drinking at the Lord's table means communing with Christ. It means identifying with his death. That I was buried and arose in Christ in redemption. The old man was buried Death to the old man, and you come out of the water, risen in Christ Jesus, walking in the newness of life. So I'm identifying with his death. I'm identifying with Christ. So how in the world can I commune with devils? Drinking of the cup of demons means identifying with Satan by worshiping him or encouraging him. Worshiping or encouraging pagan or evil practices. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are we leading two lives? Are we leading two lives? Walking with the church, walking with Jesus, I should say, and then having fellowship with devils in in some form. You can't lead two lives. You can't have a divided heart. Jesus doesn't honor a divided heart. He must be worshipped completely, a committed worship, a dedicated, consecrated worship to him. Now in verse 22, Paul speaks about idolatry, how it's offensive to the Lord. Verse 22, he says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul now comes back to what he said at the very beginning of this section. God has holy jealousy. Why? He will not compete with your love. He will not compete for your love. He created you. He died on the cross for you. He shed his blood for you. You've been purchased. You're bought by his blood. Nobody else has the right to receive your worship that's due only to him. That's why God said of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 21, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. The Lord deals strongly with idolatry because there's nothing more offensive to him than idolatry. Think about it. You know, which is the most revolting sign of unbelief. Jesus created us. He saved us. He shed his blood for us. 
He died upon a cross for us, and then we go out and we worship pagan things? Or we love pagan things more than God? That's why it provokes them to jealousy. And that's why the Lord deals strongly with idolatry. Because it's very offensive to him. It's, it's, again, it's such a, a revolting sign of unbelief. God had warned Judah about following after gods. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 5 through 9. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. Jeremiah said, uh, God said to Jeremiah, Do not make me angry by worshiping the idols you have made. Then I will not harm you. But you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by, your worshiping, by worshiping your idols, bringing on yourselves all the disasters that you now suffer. And now the Lord Almighty says, because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whom I have appointed as my deputy. I will bring them all against this land and its people and against the other nations near you. I will completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and a ruin forever. Why is he going to do this? He says, because you have not listened to me. When you don't listen to his word, it only, it only brings ruin to you. It brings destruction to our life in many ways. Revelation 21.8, the Lord said this, or, uh, John said this, Cowards who turn away from me, and unbelievers, and the corrupt, and murderers, and the immoral, and those who practice witchcraft, and idol worshipers, and all liars, their doom is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. That's a pretty strong warning. You want to worship other things other than God? Hey, Hell is the only place that you're going to end up. Paul's question here, are we stronger than he? It's really for effect. It's really to, to bring about a change. In other words, is the idolater really foolish enough to think he's more powerful than God? God will not let idolatry go unpunished. And nobody's going to get away with it. Not even his own children will get away with it. God will severely punish those who persist in worshiping any kind of idol. Some of the Corinthians had done that. And we read over in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty that some had died because of it. Some had fallen asleep, it says. They paid with their health. They paid with their lives. And God is serious about what he says. Then in verse 23, it's, Paul talks about our freedom. It's to be used to glorify God. Verse 23, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. But all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. In verses 23 through 30, Paul gives us some, very, some simple guidelines to guide us in using our Christian freedom for God's glory. First of all, he says, make it others first and self last. You know, that's usually the reverse in the natural life before we come to Christ. Hey, it's all about me first. Everybody else can wait. Everybody else is second. Faith in Jesus Christ brought a wonderful freedom to the Apostle Paul. The spiritual relationship, the spiritual union in Christ, resulting from faith and grace, it, it cleared away for Paul 
all of the outward trappings, all of the, the ceremonies and, and the mechanics of religion and, and the ritual and all that, it, it, it took it away. It gave Paul Christian freedom. Like eating uh, any, uh, any particular kind of food. There were no restrictions. Paul was free. His personal redemption was, was much greater than the legalistic and humanistic religious practices. But, once again, Paul put certain limits on his uh, spiritual freedom, and he did it for others' sake. Paul says that the final justification for individual con- conduct is, our, is personal freedom. But helpfulness and education of it. The word expedient, they use the word expedient in, in the King James Version, but here the, words, the word is edify. It refers to benefit in general. In other words, my freedom I will use to benefit in general somebody else, including a person's own spiritual good. The word edify means building up. It means strengthening or nourishing. A freedom that's enjoyed at the expense of injury to others you can't really enjoy that. That's not really beneficial to yourself. You know, if my freedom, if what I do destroys somebody else or hurts somebody else or, or, you know, pushes them away from the Lord, how can I enjoy that? How can I be happy about that? I'm wanting to bring people to Christ, not turn them off or push them away or cause them doubt or harm. Paul says that a Christian theoretically... All right, theoretically, we have the right to do whatever isn't sinful. But we have to consider, is it helpful? Is it good for others? All right, because if it's not good for others and and it's not helpful, then, then I need to put some practical limits on my freedom. Yes, I'm free to do that. But if I do, I'm going to mess up that other person. Well, now I've got to restrict my freedom and say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Though I have the freedom to do it. Because I I don't want to hurt that other person. I don't want to cause them any problems, any doubt. I don't want to mess up their relationship with God in any way. I don't want them to think the wrong thoughts. Now, sometimes it's hard to know when not to do something because because of weaker believers. And because how it might affect them. And Paul gives a simple, a simple rule of thumb to help make that decision. He says we should be sensitive and we should be gracious. I think if we're in doubt of how what I do, my freedom, how it might affect somebody else in a negative way, don't do it. When in doubt, don't do it. Plain and simple, don't do it. But, there, but then don't be too hypersensitive. You know what that is? Where we're constantly worried about what others might think about every, every little move that I make. But it's being aware of other people. And then it's being willing to limit what we do when there's a real possibility that they might misunderstand what I do or they might be offended by what I do. Now, some things, some actions may not be wrong. But they might not be in the best interest of somebody else. We're not to think of just of our, just ourselves and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't use our freedom also if it hurts a Christian, another Christian brother or sister. 
We're not to think of just ourselves. We also have to think about the needs and the opinions of others. Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul said it well. Then in verse 24, he speaks of the interests of others. Verse 24, he said, let no one seek his own. Notice that. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. The highest principle of conduct and Christian liberty is not expressing yourself. But it's thinking about others. It's thinking about what is good for others. If the Christian thinks, uh, seeks the best interest of others, then he's not going to put his own opinion or his interests ahead of others. In other words, it's like saying, you know, hey, I have the freedom to do this. I, you know, it, maybe they don't feel the, the freedom. That's their problem. They need to go work it out. That's the wrong attitude. If the Christian seeks the best interests of others, he won't put his opinion or his interests ahead of other people. And our goal should be bringing one another to perfection. We should be edifying one another. We should be helping others, each other, to come to that place of maturity in Christ, in our walk with Christ. And Paul's going to, you know, when we get to chapters uh, 11 through uh, 12 through 14, when he talks about the spiritual gift, he uses that word edify many times. Because it's about building up the church. It's about building up each other. And that should be our, 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 our you know, our idea. Our thought, our goal should be bringing one another to perfection in the body of Christ, helping them to become mature in Christ and not pleasing my own interests. Then Paul speaks about a clear conscience in verse 25 through 30. Notice what he says. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Paul said, you know, when you're in the meat market, you know, don't ask the butcher. Don't say, hey, you know, was this meat offered to an idol? Just be quiet for conscience sake. You go in and you buy the meat. In other words, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of his mouth. It's what's in your heart. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles a person. So the attitude of the Christian should be that it all, be, everything belongs to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Meaning that the Christian is free to think of everything from the viewpoint of God's glory and man's good. If, you know, Paul says, hey, let's say an unbeliever Somebody that's not a Christian, they invite you to dinner. 
and you want to go? He said, go and eat whatever they put in front of you. Don't ask any questions for conscience sake. In other words, when they put meat on the table, don't ask them, hey, you know, I need to know, was this meat offered to an idol? Just eat it. Don't ask the question. Now, let's say you're eating at an unbeliever's house. And let's say somebody else is there and eating with you and, and, and they're at the table. And, and then they say, hey, hey, you know what? This meat was offered to idols. Then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who told you, this been, has been uh, offered to idols. And now you know, they, don't, they don't want to eat it because, you know, it's been offered to an idol. Well, you could, again, Paul's saying, well, you know, you don't go say, hey, well, you know what? I'm free to eat. You know, you know if, if it bothers you, then don't eat it. No, he's saying, well, you know what? If it, you're saying to yourself, if it bothers them, I'm not going to eat it. So again, it, it's, it's, this is what Paul is speaking about exactly here. For, don't eat it for the sake of the one you know, who told you. Don't argue with them about it. Don't start, you know, well, you know what? The Bible says and, and this and that. And, you know, and, and because it may not, it, it may not just say, oh, okay. You know, it, it may take a while, a time to grow in Jesus Christ, you know, before they realize, you know, what? I am free. Now I understand the Holy Spirit has to give that, give them that peace and, and teach them and give them that freedom and say, you know what? Now I understand. I am free. I can eat this kind of, I can eat this meat. I'm free to eat whatever, you know, that it isn't sinful. And so, again, we don't argue with them. We don't condemn them. We don't insist on our own freedom. But what we do, we give up our liberty to eat it so that 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 person's conscience won't be offended. And Paul makes it clear, notice, that for conscience' sake, that refers to the other man's conscience, not our own. We're to adjust our actions for the sake of others, but we're not to adjust our consciences. The legalism of a weaker brother shouldn't make us legalistic, only gracious. Unbelievers will be more likely to respect us for showing loving concern and care for the convictions of a fellow Christian. I mean, how many times do we ruin our testimony for standing up for our freedom or for our liberty? Or for our rights. Oh, I got here first. You know, you crowded in line. You know, I, I, you know, hey, you know what? Step aside and let him have it. Being a witness all the time of Jesus Christ. In verses 29 through 30, Paul writes as though he hears an objection from one of the mature Christians. I'm going to read verses 29 through 30 from the Living Translation. It might not, Paul says, it might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. Now, and here's what we would say. Why should my freedom be limited by what somebody else thinks? Why should I not do what I want to do and have the right to do because of what they think? Paul says, now, why should my freedom be limited by what somebody else thinks? He says, if I can thank God for the good food, I'm sorry, if I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Then Paul tells you in verse 31. Notice what he says. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There it is. Paul says, I'll tell you why you shouldn't eat something, though you have the right to eat it. Glorify God by not doing it. In things that aren't specifically good or evil, 
but left to Christian conscience? The most important question should not be what's most satisfying or desirable to me or or what do I want to do. The question shouldn't be, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what's desirable to me. No, the question should be, what I do, will it bring honor to God's work? Will what I do bring glory to God? You see, Paul wanted to get rid of all possible obstacles, anything and everything that would distract, that would take away from his effective ministry. He didn't want any hindrances to the gospel. He gave courteous, careful thought. And he wanted to make sure that. That's in, in, in glorifying God. He especially mentioned three groups of people that he was anxious to help. Look at verse 32. He said, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. These were three groups of people that he was anxious to help. He stayed away from aggravating the Jews. They were religious, but they weren't saved. He, he He wanted to give careful and courteous thought to the Greeks, who were the Gentiles. They were heathens, but not saved. But he was especially concerned about the members of the church of God. Paul was a leader in experiencing the freedom that, w- that was his in Jesus Christ. He, you know, he, he, he was set free from all of these things, as we all are. But he was a self-disciplined and dedicated servant to God in the way that he behaved. And that's the, the example that we should follow. Again, Paul didn't want to do anything, and he wouldn't do anything, that might hinder people outside the church, or that would push them away. That is, those that were already saved. This is why he said in verse 33 here, I'm not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Notice that. There's the purpose for, for the things that he did or did not do. He said it was for the purpose that they might be saved. Jesus came as a servant. And he was the servant of the, uh, he was the sovereign of the universe. The creator of the universe. He ordered the universe. And yet, he accepted the role of a servant, of a slave. The lesson here is clear. Again, it's not the exercise of personal liberty that draws men. It's not because people say, oh, look, he's, he's free and he can do all this and that. No, it's the submission of the Christian to God. I won't do that because God, it, 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 won't, you know, it won't please God. I won't do that because I know it may offend you and I don't want to offend you because, again, I don't want to offend God. So it's the submission of the Christian to God. And it's the way that he uses his or her liberty in serving fellow man. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.19, he said, For though I am free from all men, notice I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. His thinking was the more I become submissive to God in the things that I do and don't do, and the more that I, I do that for my fellow man, he says, that I might might win them that way. 
Paul's standard for everything he did wasn't what he wanted to do. His standard wasn't doing what he thought he could do and had the freedom to do and what he wanted to do over what others said. Paul's standard for everything he did wasn't what he liked, but what was best for those that were around him. Now, first and foremost, what we do, we are to do for the glory of God. Whatever it is. As he said in verse 31 here, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A Christian man can empty trash, he can dig ditches for the glory of God. A Christian woman can wash, she can wash dishes, she can sweep the floor for the glory of God. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter what you do. But this does matter. If you can't do it for the glory of God, you shouldn't be doing it. When we live like this, in submission to God, living for God, restricting our liberties, For our fellow man. When we live like this, we're a testimony to the world so that those who are lost, they might be saved. In closing, it's more important for us to make tracks in the world than to give out tracks. There was a zealous man in Memphis, Tennessee. He was handing out tracts to everyone. He handed a tract to a man, but the man wouldn't accept it. He asked the man, what is it? And the man handing out tracts said, well, it's a tract. The man said, well, I can't read. He said, but I tell you what, I'll just watch your tracts. The way he walks the way he handles himself. You see, people read our tracks in life much more than a track that you would hand them. We, you know, it's easy to say what we are and say what we do and say what we believe and tell people that, but you know what? Watching it, when somebody sees it in action, that's the real story. Those are the facts. Paul said, we're like living letters. We're like living epistles. We may be the only Bible people read. That man, that woman said they were a Christian. Boy, they live like it. We're living letters, Paul said. We're seen and we're read by all men. Jesus left tracks. And though he was God, Paul said in Philippians 2, 6, 8, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and he appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus submitted his very breath, his very life to win us to himself. We're to follow his tracks. Let's walk in his tracks and leave those tracks for others to see. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Father, help us to leave tracks. Not the, not the little booklet ones, Lord. 
but the physical tracks. The things that people can see and follow. Help us to be, Lord, what Christ has called us to be, Father. Reflections of Jesus. Models, patterns of Jesus. Father, we can only do that through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, God. Lord, help us to want more of you. Help us to decrease that you might increase. May, we, may, may Jesus be the only, the only one seen in our life, God. May he be heard through our, through our words. May they see him walk in our steps, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for all that you are to us, Lord. Humble us, God. May we esteem others higher than ourselves, Lord. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Lord, we thank you for the offering we'll receive today, God. We thank you as always for your goodness, your grace, your faithfulness. And Father, for always taking care of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, tonight.